turn through Bibles if you haven't already got there to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. We'll read a couple verses. I would recommend you could read the whole Psalm. Uh, it's again, uh, it, this one is, I guess you might say, isn't particularly on prayer. It's kind of a declaration, and then it goes to this portion uh, of it that we'll look at this morning that is about prayer. But reading Psalm 27, verses 7 and 8. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Very short, very profound. Something we need to be doing on a regular basis. Seeking God's face. Crying out to God to hear us. We'll talk about that in a little bit in detail, but uh, let me give you a couple of quotes from men in the past who saw the value of prayer and the importance of prayer in our lives as believers. Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, said this, the just man does not desist from praying until he ceases to be just. The just man does not cease to be praying until he ceases to be just. Augustine said this regarding prayer, he that loveth little prayeth little, and he that loveth much, prayeth much. That is in the context, of course, of loving God and loving fellowship with God, communing with God, but also it's in terms of those who love their neighbor as themselves. They pray much, okay, if they true love, truly love others. If they don't, if they really don't have a love for other people, let alone for the Lord, then they don't pray much because they're caught up in their own lives. And as we said last time in our study of Psalm 25, prayer is or should be the lifeblood of the church. It really should. It should be a vital part of our life as believers, whether we're in church or not. Richard Hooker said this, prayer is the first thing wherewith a righteous life begins and the last thing wherewith it doth end. If you think about that, when someone comes to faith in Christ, that's when they first pray, Lord, have mercy upon me, save me. And at the end of your life, Lord, into my hands, into your hands I commit my spirit. The beginning and ending of our life as a Christian should be in prayer. Bunyan was bold enough to say this, if thou art not a praying person, thou art not a Christian. If you do not pray, if you have no desire to pray, you have no desire to have communion with your God, then how can you say you're a believer? Why would you even make that assertion if you have no desire to pray to God? So that's a pretty bold statement, but if you think about it, it would be true. If you have no, no desire to pray, then how can you claim to love God? J.C. Ryle put it this way, Prayer is to faith what breath is to life. How a man can live and not breathe is past my comprehension. And how a man can believe and not pray is past my comprehension too. You can't, breathe, you can't live and not breathe. And you can't really say you're a Christian and not pray. The scriptures impress upon us, as we've seen in this brief portion in Psalm 25, they impress upon us the duty of seeking continual communion with God and the chief means of doing so is what? It's via prayer, right? When we commune with God, we do it via prayer. David McIntyre, who is a colleague of Andrew Bonar in Glasgow, Scotland in the late 1800s, in his booklet called The Hidden Life of Prayer, said this, Prayer is the uplift of the earthbound soul into the heavens, the entrance of the purified spirit into the holiness, the rending of the luminous veil that shuts in as behind curtains, the glory of God. Let me read that again. Think about it. Prayer is the uplift of the earthbound soul into the heavens, 
the entrance of the purified spirit into the holiest, the rending of the luminous veil that shuts in as behind curtains the glory of God. We come before God in prayer and we are, in a sense, entering in to glory. We're entering into that his presence. We set aside all other things and we focus upon him and him only and his glory. And yet, as beneficial as it is, and as important as it is to our spiritual well-being, if we're honest, it's a struggle, isn't it? Prayer can be a struggle in our lives. It's not something we think about all the time or we jump into right away. We have to develop a habit of prayer. Our flesh gets in the way. And in this fast-paced, electronically stimulated and controlled age we live in today, we find it hard to turn off the noise, don't we? Let alone our phones. <laughs> and uh, we fight, face a myriad of distractions that keep us from entering into our prayer closets, so to speak, and communing with our God in prayer. Jesus spoke to his disciples in Matthew 6.6 6 about the importance of a private time of prayer when he said this, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which is in secret shall reward thee openly. We may not have a closet we go into to pray, but there should be a private space we get away to, something that allows us to focus on him. Jesus also recorded in Scripture as setting the example for us when he, quote, withdrew himself to pray. And he did that quite frequently. This particular text is in Luke 5, 16. But he withdrew himself from the noise, from the crowds, from all the distractions that he might seek his father's face. And should not we also, who, unlike him, are often struggling with sin and the weakness of our flesh, to imitate our Savior by withdrawing to a quiet place to pray? Now, you may recall <clears throat> when Brantz was teaching on Wednesday nights on the importance of prayer as shown in Acts chapter 2, that he referenced the story of Martin Luther teaching his barber how to pray. And Luther encouraged the barber to memorize the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed, and to use them as a basis of prayer. And eventually, Luther wrote a little book on that very subject. And about a thousand years later, or not quite, R.C. Sproul wrote a little book for children, which I'd recommend, called The Barber Who Wanted to Pray. Great illustrations, great text. This is from our library. I'll put it out there for anybody who wants to look at it. But great little, little illustration of what Luther was doing with that barber. <clears throat> and it speaks, obviously, of the importance of prayer and how to use uh, these different um, <clears throat> tools to guide us in, in prayer and to make sure that we're using uh, a proper approach to God. And I, as I believe I mentioned last time, I taught on Psalm 25. The memorization of Scripture is also important. Not only memorization of Lord's Prayer, of course, which is from Scripture, Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments, but the memorization of, memorization of different texts of Scripture are important, obviously, in giving you a foundation for praying to God, giving you tools to approach God. You can plead the promises of God as found in Scripture. That's what he would have us to do. Uh, you can plead those promises because they are his word, and we can be guaranteed that he will honor his word. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence which we have before him, obviously referring to prayer. This is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything, here's the four important words, according to his will, he hears us. According to his will. That is the key to our prayer life. <clears throat> Excuse me. R.C. Sproul, in, in his book, Let Us Pray, which is a symposium 
on prayer uh, by leading preachers and theologians made this very profound statement. He says, all that God does is for his glory first and for our benefit second. We pray because God commands us to pray because it glorifies him and because it benefits us. Let me read that again. All that God does is for his glory first and for our benefit second. <clears throat> we pray because God commands us to pray. Obviously, there's a principle of obedience there. Because it glorifies him and because it benefits us. <clears throat> As Joel Beakey points out in the book, Taking Hold of God, he says, quote, prayer does not change God. And Brian, Brian brought this out in his uh, study on the uh, um, providence of God in all things. <clears throat> prayer does not change, change God or his decrees for three reasons. First, God is immutable. He doesn't, doesn't change at all. Secondly, God's good pleasure governs everything. And third, God is in control of everything, including our prayers. Let me read that for you again in case you want to write them down. Prayer does not change God or his decrees for three reasons. First, God is immutable. He's not going to change because he is perfect in everything he does. Second, God's good pleasure governs everything. <clears throat> and third, God is in control of everything, including our prayers. Okay, now so you would say, well, why should we pray? Well, because he commanded us to pray. Okay, so let's consider what prayer is, what it's for, and how it benefits us as believers. So the first thing we want to look at is prayer as worship. Okay, prayer as worship. Worship of God is not optional for believers, let alone for the whole human race. Those who refuse to both acknowledge and worship the one true God will be subject to the wrath of God for all of eternity. <clears throat> they are fools who say there is no God. That's Psalm 14.1. They're fools who say there is no God, and therefore they do not call upon him. They do not pray to him. That's Psalm 14.4. So you're a fool if you don't pray because you're not calling upon him. You don't recognize him as your God. But the righteous, those who believe in him, who is their creator and their savior, as our text in Psalm 27, verses 7 and 8 stated, not only cry unto God in prayer, but they do so in obedience to his command to seek his face. God commands us, seek my face. And the psalmist responded, I, I seek your face, O Lord. Prayer, per John MacArthur, as found in the Lord's example in Luke chapter 11, which we'll get to in just a little bit. Prayer as that example of the Lord's prayer in Luke 11 includes praise, petition, penitence, and a plea for grace in our sanctification. Let me read that again. Prayer, as in, it's included in that prayer, the Lord's prayer, praise, petition, penitence, and a plea for grace in our sanctification. MacArthur goes on to say those are not only the key elements of prayer, they're also some of the principal features of authentic worship. The parallelism between prayer and worship is no coincidence. Prayer is the distilled essence of worship. Prayer is the distilled essence of worship. Sadly, too many believers look upon prayer as a way of getting God to give us whatever we want, rather than asking God, to glorify his name in doing what is best to answer us, what? In accordance with his holy will. There's the key again. We ask God to answer us according to his holy will, not according to our desires, our passions, our interests. We do it 
we say, Lord, answer us according to your holy will that you what? get the glory, right? He gets the glory as he answers prayer, not us. MacArthur goes on to say of prayer that it is fundamentally an act of worship. It is an expression of our praise, our unworthiness, our desire to see God's will fulfilled, there it is again, and our utter dependence on him for all our needs. So that's the kind of the picture we should have of prayer. It is worship. It is a desire to express our unworthiness, our dependence upon him, our need for him to intervene in our life. So our initial object of prayer is to acknowledge God. When we come before God, we should acknowledge him for who he is, to glorify his name, and to bow before him in submission to his will. The Heidelberg Catechism, at question number 122, puts it this way, and it's, become, it's like a prayer. It's, it's, answer, it's answered in this way. Grant us first rightly to know thee, and to sanctify, glorify, and praise thee in all thy works, in which thy power, wisdom, goodness, justice, mercy, and truth are clearly displayed, and further also, that we may so order and direct our whole lives, our thoughts, words, and actions, that thy name may never be blasphemed, but rather honored and praised on our account. That's a tall order, isn't it? Think about that. You ever think about that when you pray? That's quite a a challenge there, to to glorify him, to, to first of all think of him, to sanctify, glorify, praise him for his power, his wisdom, his goodness, his justice, his mercy, his truth, all those things, that, that can keep you praying for a while. But think about that as a, as a means of as prayer. That's, that's pretty humbling when we think of that. Yet, that is how we should approach God in prayer. We should approach him with reverence, with awe, and with humility. Exodus 15, 11, Who is like unto you, O Lord amongst gods? Who is like unto you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? We taught our children that as a chorus. And there's an answer to it in another portion of Scripture. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, amongst gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing in wonders? Who is like unto thee? Think about that when you go before God in prayer. That's a picture of humility and submission. Who's like unto you? Who, can I, who else can I go to except you in all your glorious attributes? The Book of Common Prayer uses these words as an example of how to approach God. Again, this is all about how we approach God in prayer. It says, we praise thee, we give thanks to thee for thy great glory, O Lord God. High thoughts of God, his majesty, his holiness, his sovereignty, let alone his mercy, should be the entranceway to our prayers, beloved. It should be the entranceway, that how we approach him. We approach him for who he is, not for what we want. David McIntyre, in his book on the hidden life of prayer, said this, and so, Praise addressed to God in name and memory of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, rises inevitably into adoration. As you come before God in prayer in the name of Christ, it, it inevitably leads to an adoration of God. We approach him as who he is, the great creator of all things, the savior of our souls. We approach him with adoration, not with a grocery list, saying, Lord, here I am. Can you get me this, 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 and this? We approach approach him with a sense of awe and wonder and amazement that he is our God and that we are his people. May we be reminded, especially in our corporate prayers, to consider whom we're addressing and perhaps pray with these or or similar words as we come before him. 
especially this time of year. Oh, come, let us adore him. As we gather together in prayer, perhaps that should be on our mind. Oh, come, let us adore him in prayer, as well as in worship, in song, and other means. Come, let us adore him. Andrew Murray proclaimed this. He said, the glory of the Father must be the aim and the end, the very soul and life of our prayers. Read that again. The glory of the Father must be the aim and the end, the very soul and life of our prayers. Psalm 115, verse 1 says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name give glory. Not unto us, but unto your name give glory. Let's move on now to our next couple of texts here, the model prayer. We'll call this the model prayer. In fact, if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Familiar portion of scripture, obviously, but it's good to read it and be reminded of what it says. And we'll also look briefly at Luke chapter 11, just so you can see the comparison. Matthew chapter 6, and in fact, let's back up to verse 8. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Flipping over to Luke chapter 11, and beginning at verse, I guess it is verse 2. So he said unto them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Slight difference in the text there, but it is the same prayer. Uh, the passages that are, are we just read are, of course, Christ teaching there. It's often called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it was, the first one from Matthew 6 was taken from the Sermon on the Mount. And the other response uh, is to his disciples' request to teach us to pray. Now, if you've been a believer for very long, you probably know it by heart. However, it is a misnomer to call it the Lord's Prayer. In other words, a prayer that Jesus himself would pray. Can anyone tell me why it would not be the Lord's Prayer? His prayer is in John 17. <laughs> why would this be something Jesus really couldn't honestly pray? Okay, but that's in both Matthew and Luke, the prayer asks God to forgive us our debts, which is Matthew 6, 12, or sins, Luke eleven four. something Jesus would never have to do because he was sinless. So he would not pray this in the sense of, you know, forgive me my sins, my debts, even though he was representative of us. Obviously, he bore our sins and our debts, but for himself, he could not pray this honestly because he was not a sinner in any sense of the term. In Matthew chapter 6, the word... Um, I think it's, going back, yeah, okay, I think it's Matthew chapter 6, uh, yeah, the word debts is used. It's a translation of the Greek word ophelema, which means something owed or a moral fault, okay, that's Matthew chapter 6, whereas chapter, chapter 11 of Luke actually uses the word sins in place of debts, 
And that's a translation of the Greek word harmatia, which means sins or offense. In both texts, both Matthew and in Luke, the offsetting debtors, uh, Matthew's is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and Luke is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. It's a translation of the Greek word ophiletes, which means morally to fail or to be guilty. So though prayer is, an, is appropriate for us to use, this prayer, this model prayer as we call it, it's appropriate for, for us to use as an example. It's not meant to be a prayer that Jesus would accurately use for himself. He's using it as an example for them. This is how you should pray. In addition, MacArthur says this, that prayer was a pattern for the disciples and us to follow, not a mantra to be recited without engaging the mind or the passions. You see the difference? It's not a mantra. In fact, Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6, 7 not to use vain repetition as the heathen do. How many times have you heard the Lord's Prayer quoted mechanically at a funeral service or some other solemn event? Just a week or so ago, I did. I was at a funeral service for a cousin. There was a Mormon there, who happened to be my sister, a bunch of Catholics, some other people I didn't really know. But the, the officiant said, let's say the Lord's Prayer. They all said it very mechanically. No true sense of praying to God. It was just, we, we said it because you're supposed to say it. There was no meaning to it to anybody that was other than those of us who knew what it was. So it's something that has unfortunately become that type of thing. And, and MacArthur points out very clearly, it shouldn't be a mantra that you just quote because it's in the Bible. It should be something from your heart that you feel from your heart. And when we study that in a couple of weeks, we'll see the importance of every part of that prayer and how we should approach it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Referring back to Luther's little book uh, and his suggestion to use this prayer, the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed as a basis for our prayers, it is interesting to note that all three of them begin with a reference to the acknowledging and worshiping of God the Father. In other words, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Or the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The focus is on God as the creator and, and rule over all. He is the God Almighty. He is the Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be his name. That should be the beginning of our prayers. It reflects upon our awe, our fear, our dependence, and love for our creator whom we are addressing. We should come before him with the proper respect, with the proper awe and wonder of who he is and, and that we're coming before him. You cannot rightly expect an answer from someone whom you either do not know or really care about or you do not have the proper respect for. In other words, before you begin to pray, carefully consider whom you are addressing. A.W. Pink said this, because prayer is an attitude of dependency, the one who really prays is submissive, submissive, here we go again, to the divine will. That's how we should be praying, submissive to the divine will. Not my will, but thy will be done. The Westminster Shorter Catechism points out in the beginning of a series of questions, which I said we'll deal with next time, on prayer, that the Lord's Prayer begins with God and it ends with God. That's how we should be praying. We begin with worshiping God and we end with thanking and acknowledging God. If, uh, following the first catechism question in both the 1689 and the Westminster, if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then our prayers should reflect that, shouldn't you think? 
our prayers should reflect that, that our goal should be to glorify God and enjoy Him from everyone. And that should be a part of our prayer life. In a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll deal with that. We'll bring that series together, as I mentioned, on the uh, Catechism, Westminster Catechism, on prayer, using the Lord's Prayer as a, as a guide. And I, I mentioned, for those who weren't in here initially, that you can look in the back of your 1689 Confession of Faith booklet, and you'll see the last nine questions are on that Lord's Prayer. So in truth, the scriptures are full of model prayers. I think I mentioned that last time. There, there's lots of model prayers if you take the time to notice them. And that's important as we read through scripture. It's, it's good to read through scripture and, and get the, the overall sense of it. But look for the model prayers. Look for those prayers that give you an example. Who could forget, for instance, or who would doubt that Psalm 51 is an excellent example of a prayer of repentance and a cry for forgiveness? If you're familiar with Psalm 30, 51, it is David's cry. Lord, have mercy upon me. And that's how we should approach God when we are dealing with sin in our life. Use Psalm 51. It's a, it's a great example. In fact, if you were presenting the gospel to someone and <clears throat> Holy Spirit began to work on that person and bring them to repentance and they were to say, how should I pray? How, how should I ask for forgiveness? Point to Psalm 51. Say, use that as your model of prayer as you approach God. In Jeremiah 17 and 18, we find very passionate prayers of deliverance from our enemies and our persecutors. There's two you could look up, Jeremiah 17 and 18. Isaiah 64 contains what we would call a classic model prayer that asks God to demonstrate his power, his sovereignty, his glory, and it contains a confession of sin, a need of salvation, and a humble admittance of total dependence upon God. Let's turn there. Turn to Isaiah 64 with me. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's worth reading the whole thing. Psalm, or Isaiah 64. And as we read it, get this sense of Isaiah's coming before God, acknowledging his great power, his majesty, his rule over all. And then he goes down describing all these things in which he cries out for mercy. He, he acknowledges his sin the nation. In fact, he's speaking on behalf of the nation <clears throat> and prays for forgiveness. Psalm, uh, Isaiah, I want to say Psalm. It's like a Psalm. Isaiah 64, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things, for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you, who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him, who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. There's the penitence. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have been, and consumed us because of our iniquities. And here is the plea for forgiveness. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are potter. And all we are, the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praise you is burned up with fire. And all our pleasant things are laid waste. 
Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Beautiful prayer. A beautiful acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God and of the sins of his people and a desire to see forgiveness and find his mercy to be shown to us. As I mentioned before in our study of Psalm 25, a careful view of the Psalms, as well as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other texts, will provide you with many examples of model prayers, and you could use those as a means of approaching God. <clears throat> Let's look now at what we'll call the goal of prayer. Okay, the goal of prayer. We looked at it as, as worship, prayer as worship. Let's look at the goal of prayer. R.L. Dabney, a Southern Presbyterian pastor and theologian in the 1800s, defined prayer as this, an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will, there it is again, in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. The goal is really about being more God-centered and God-dependent. That's a key goal of prayer, being more God-centered and God-dependent. Paul Tagus in his book, Teach Them to Pray, said this, Scripture has more to say about prayer than we can ever hope to master in one lifetime. Hence, a desire to continually be taught how to pray is a mark of growth towards spiritual maturity. The more a believer grows in Christ, the less he or she is governed by a spirit of independence, and the more his or her life becomes marked by a habitual God dependency. Let me read that last sentence again. That's a very important point. Uh, being made here about the importance of prayer and its goal is to become more godlike. The more a believer grows in Christ, the less he or she is governed by a spirit of independence, and the more his or her life becomes marked by habitual God dependency. Our prayers should be soaked, literally soaked, in humility and submission to God and His will. Isaiah captures the picture multiple times, including the text we just read in chapter 64, but he captures it also in that sense of how weak we are, how feeble we should look at ourselves compared to God. Isaiah, here's an example, Isaiah 29, verse 16, shall the potter be as esteemed as the, I'm sorry, shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say to him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? This, of course, points back to the creation and God's making of Adam. Can you picture Adam? I thought about this. Can you picture Adam after God made him? And instead of saying, thank you, Lord, he says, you know, Lord, I really like to have a tail like these other animals. Could you, could you fix that up? Or I like the way the claws of the lion, they're really great. Could you give me some of those? In other words, complaining about how he was made, saying, I don't like the way you made me. You know, I want other features. I want to be different. I want to be like this or that. No, what did Adam do? He was submissive to God. He let God, God made him. He didn't argue with God about how I should look or what I would want to look like. Or don't take a rib. Could you take maybe a toe, you know, to make the wife out of it? That would be more appropriate. No, he didn't do that. He just submitted to God's will. There's no record of him arguing with God in the garden until, of course, he sinned. Also, uh, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9, similar to the other texts we just read. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Let the, shall the clay say to him who formed it, Why? what are you making? Or shall the, your handiwork say he has no hands? Boy, these passages would really speak to the transgender movement, wouldn't it, today? Think about that. Wouldn't that really kind of throw back in their face? 
questioning, why did you make me this way? Why am I not a boy or why am I not a girl? Rather than, thank you, Lord, for making me who I am. No, but that's our attitude today is we question God. We argue against God. The very essence of the transgender movement, the homosexual movement, is this kind of fist in God's face saying, I don't like the way you made me. I don't like you know, your rules. I don't like well, how I have to follow them. I want to be independent. And what did we just read about? The importance of prayer is that it recognizes our dependence upon God. We should become more and more recognizing that we are not independent of God, but rather we're totally dependent upon him. You know, um, we as creatures should not look at ourselves as trying to overthrow or question God's sovereign will, but rather we need to look at prayer as a means of drawing near to God, seeking to understand and submit to his will, and finding contentment in it. That's a real key thing, is finding contentment in God's will. It's far better to be soft, moldable clay than be rigid, resisting clay that requires more pressure and affliction to shape it in the way the Lord wishes us to be. Which would you rather be? Would you want the master to be molding your soft, submissive clay? Or would you rather be dry and hard and he has to put a lot of pressure to get what he wants you to be. He shall accomplish his will on the earth, whether you like it or not. He shall accomplish his will. We would do well to find comfort and peace in seeking his face, bowing to his purposes, and not arguing with him. So a goal of prayer is not to get God to see things our way or to do things our way, but to find peace and joy and contentment in his way. That's the goal of prayer. J.C. Ryle, in his book entitled A Call to Prayer, said, Diligence in prayer is the secret to eminent holiness. Diligence in prayer is the secret to eminent holiness. It would seem more pretty obvious that the more time you spend seeking the face of God, as we saw in our study of Psalm 25 in, in this text here in Psalm 27, the more you will pursue holiness and fulfill the Lord's command to be ye holy, for I am holy. That's from Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. And Peter repeats it in 1 Peter 1.16. So we can see from the Old and New Testament, it was not just something that Israel had to do, but it's for all believers of all time. Be ye holy, for I am holy. So one of the most important roles of prayer is to make us more holy, more like our Heavenly Father, and to be an imitator of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, who was ultimately the holiest man who ever walked the earth. He lived a life of holiness and obedience to his and our Father. We may cry out in despair, how can I possibly do this? I'm a sinful man, and that's true. How can we do it in and of ourselves? We cannot. But God has not left us helpless to become more holy than we are. He not only gave his Son to purchase our redemption and make us judicially holy in his sight, but as it says in Romans 8.26, I'm sorry, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession with us for, with groanings that cannot be uttered. So we have all three members of the Trinity helping us to fulfill God's command to be holy as he is holy, and it all revolves around prayer. Christ interceding for us, the Holy Spirit interceding for us, the Father whom we come before pleading for his mercy and grace. It's all about prayer. And all three members of the Trinity are involved in it. So this is important that we keep this in mind, that we're not setting ourselves apart from the, the instructions and the commands of Scripture and trying to do it our own way. 
coming up with pretty prayers or you know um, a list of, of things, but rather focusing on the glory of God, the worship of God, the submission to God, and the contentment with God's holy will. So let's kind of draw a little conclusion here. I know it's a little early, but we're going to just focus on this. What can we learn? What can we learn from this study about the value of prayer? Well, first of all, prayer should not be seen as a drudgery, should it? It should be a joy. It should be a blessing. It should be something we enjoy doing. It shouldn't be an awkward exercise in spirituality, but a blessed opportunity to draw near to our God and to rest in his will, to find peace in his purposes, and to realize more and more our dependence upon him. I think that's a big issue with us here in America because we are bragging about independence. You know, we're so independent of the world. We're, you know, the independence of our nation started because we separated from Great Britain. But unfortunately, that's caught up in our DNA, you might say, as a nation, in which we also think it's great to be independent of everything, including God. And as Christians, we, of all people, should be more and more recognizing our dependence upon him, not just for our daily bread, but for our very spiritual life and for our hope of eternal life. So it's very important we keep that in perspective, that we are people who should be totally dependent upon him. John Calvin said this about prayer. He said, it is therefore by the benefit of prayer that we reach those riches which are laid up for us with the Heavenly Father, referring to the text there in Ephesians chapter 1, that he has left for us or prepared for us all the riches in heaven in Christ Jesus. One of the benefits of an honest, humble prayer is that it leads us to examine ourselves in the light of God's word and his will as expressed in that word, which can lead us to repentance and to ask for grace to fully obey him. In Lamentations chapter 3, and verses 40 and 41, Jeremiah cries out this way, Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Now he was praying on behalf of the people, of course, who had gone far from, away from God and were taken into exile because of their sins. But he's also giving us an example of prayer for us. We should examine ourselves, search our hearts, and come before God, turning back to the Lord, saying, Lord, have mercy upon us, and we should lift up our hearts and hands, which is a picture of submission and dependence upon the Lord. So keep those two words you know, in your mind when you think of prayer, submission and dependence. We're submitting to his will. We're depending upon him in all things. If we have drifted from God, prayer can bring us back into fellowship with him. Job, as we know, faced great trials and came to despair, but he knew that the answers he sought were not found in his friends, pretty obviously, but in prayer. He cried out in Job 23, verses 3 and 6, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. He would take note of me. Prayer is us taking note of God. Come before him in adoration, in humility, and dependence that he would take note of us and hear our petitions. That's what prayer is all about. Coming before him, taking note of him, being aware of him, 
being in awe of him, to worship him, regardless of whether he answers our prayer or not, but trusting that he will take note of us because he's loved us with an everlasting love, and he will look down upon us, have mercy upon us, and according to his will, he will answer us. I hope that's been a blessing. A little early, but let's close in prayer.